0: Uh, we're here in the fifth Sunday of Epiphany, right? It's the second to last one this time around. Next Sunday will be Transfiguration Sunday. Whoa, that sounds special. So Mark 1, 29 to 39 from the New Revised Standard Version. It says, as soon as they left the synagogue, they entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law was in bed with a fever, and they told him about her at once. He came and took her by the hand and lifted her up. Then the fever left her and she began to serve them. That evening at sunset they brought to him all who were sick or possessed with demons. And the whole city was gathered around the door, and he cured many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. In the morning, while it was still very dark, he got up and went out to a deserted place, and there he prayed. And Simon and his companions hunted for him. When they found him, they said to him, Everyone is searching for you. He answered, let us go to the neighboring towns so that I might proclaim the message there also, for that is what I came to do. And he went throughout Galilee, proclaiming the message in their synagogues and casting out demons. Amen. Thank you, Lord, for the scriptures. Y'all can be seated. So. Some weeks ago, we started this journey like I've not really like made like an official series, right? I'm not sure when I'm gonna have a series. I did like uh, the movie quotes, right? Uh, But that's like just because like I think in movie quotes most of the time. but uh, since then, we've not really had a series so much. We've just kind of followed the season, the calendar, the liturgical calendar is what that's called. It's the church calendar. Liturgy simply means worship. I know it's a weird word, but it's just worship. That's what it means. And when we come in here, the service is all worship, not just the music, right? We worship in song and we worship in word. Amen. Amen. Cool. So we started this journey though with a simple question, could Christ do it better? (laughs) If Jesus were living my life, could he be me better than I am being me? With my job, with my family, living in my house, on my street, with my shoe size and every other little thing, That makes up the totality of what we think of when we say me and my. If Jesus were living this life of mine, could he pull it off better than I am now? What do you think? (laughs) Could Jesus be a better plumber, a better electrician, a better business owner? A better pastor, yeah, I hope so. A better, uh, I don't know, whatever school teacher, janitor, whatever. Doesn't matter. A better dad, better mom, friend, confidant. I answer this question with an unequivocal and unqualified yes, absolutely. And so I want to sit at His feet and learn from Him. I want to be His apprentice in life. I will follow Jesus. That is what it means to be a Christian. To be a Christian, to follow Jesus, is to confess, you could do me better than I could do me, and so I want to learn from you. Amen? This is the question that we all have to answer for ourselves. It's your life and your choice. You're going to attach yourself to something or someone. You can't help it. You're a human being. It's what we do. And that something or someone will form you, period. For better or worse, it will form you. Your life will begin to reflect whatever that thing or that person is. If it's Jesus, then let it be Jesus. Relinquish the others. Let it go. Last week, we began to talk about uh, spiritual disciplines, right, or soul training exercises, things like that. The practices that we can engage in for spiritual transformation, they're not the means of our salvation. We don't do these things for, for points in heaven. We don't do these things to get favor with God. But they are a means of our transformation. These exercises are how the Holy Spirit transforms your inner life. And we learned how the concept of self-denial, right, is at the heart of pretty much all of these disciplines. We saw how this uh, self-denial is at the very core of the character of God as revealed in Christ. We learn to surrender all by starting with surrendering a little, right? We start where we are, what we can do. And today I want to begin with a quote. It'll be on the screen, so please follow along closely. It's a rather lengthy quote. The problem we face today needs very little time for its statement. Our lives in a modern city grow too complex and overcrowded, even the necessary obligations which we feel we must must meet grow overnight like Jack's beanstalk, and before we know it, we are bowed down with burdens, crushed under committees, strained, breathless, and hurried, panting through never-ending program of appointments. We are too busy to be good wives to our husbands, good homemakers, good companions of our children, good friends to our friends, and with no time at all to be friends to the friendless. But if we withdraw from public engagements and interests in order to spend quiet hours with the family, the guilty cause of citizenship whisper disquieting claims in our ears. Our children's schools should receive our interest. The civic problems of our community need our attention. The wirier issues of the nation and the world are heavy upon us, as they should be in all of those cases. Our professional status, our social obligations, our membership in this or that very important organization put claims upon us. And in frantic fidelity, we try to meet at least the necessary minimum of calls upon us. But we're weary and breathless, and we know and regret that our life is slipping away With our having tasted so little of the peace and joy and serenity, we are persuaded it should yield to a soul of wide caliber. The times for the deeps of the silences of the heart seem so few, and in guilty regret we must postpone till next week that deeper life of unshaken composure in the holy presence where we sincerely know our true home is, for this week is much too full. It feels like it was written yesterday, doesn't it? Even in this time of a global pandemic where many of our obligations are forced away from us, it still feels so true. A quote came from a little book called A Testament of Devotion, written by a guy named Thomas R. Kelly in 1941. 1941 I want today to talk about that peace, joy, serenity, depth and composure that are yours in a with God-shaped life. I know that you see it, I know that you long for it, but I also know that you do not yet take hold of it. Not because you haven't tried, but because you haven't yet learned how. This sentiment is not new. It's with us now. It was there in 1941. It was there long before that, and it'll be there for as long as people keep on peopling. <laughs> our modern living is not the problem. How were the means of our formation is what we're talking about in this series. Uh, we started some six or seven weeks ago or so, and, and in this season of Epiphany, we've looked at Uh, Some of the things that Jesus did that show us his divine nature, like today, right? Healing the sick and casting out demons. And I've gone to great lengths to instill in you the idea that we are not learning to do the things that Jesus did. We are learning how to do the things that Jesus did and said to do. What we do is the outward manifestation of who we are. What Jesus did was the outward manifestation of who he was. It was the outward manifestation of his inner life. What you do is the outward manifestation of your inner life. What we are learning here then is how to change the inner life. Because that is where the action comes from. Our automatic responses, our character, is what needs to be transformed. We evangelicals, right, we we find in our faith lineage in the Protestant Reformation that begun about 500 or so years ago, uh, that, that lineage brings some baggage with it. A lot of it. You may be familiar with the concept of salvation by grace alone and not by works. Right? Probably heard it. We are saved by grace through faith. Absolutely. More than a few times, though, I've heard someone complain of a a preacher or a leader. Man, so-and-so is teaching works righteousness. What an odd accusation. They weren't, more than likely. You just weren't paying close enough attention. We are absolutely saved by grace through faith. But the danger of this Reformation insistence is the distorted notion that there is no work to be done. The fundamentalist, and by extension, evangelical, that's our heritage, is fundamentalism, which isn't all bad. Transcend and include, right? The error is an almost pharisaical aversion to doing the things out of fear, of being found trying to work our way to heaven. This excuse has been used to justify not utilizing the very means God provides us, as Paul puts it, to work out your own salvation. But make no mistake, there is work to be done. I don't even need to tell you that you know just by thinking about your own self and what you did yesterday. Me too. There is work to be done, not for your salvation, but toward your formation into the likeness of Christ. This is the work of discipleship, of spiritual formation. And if you could let that fear go, fear of works, for just a moment, if you could let it go, you would see that the Scriptures are littered with this. It is everywhere. Not working for, but working out your salvation. Yet somehow, and in spite of this aversion to works, another problem in Christianity, in our society, is the emphasis on performance. Performance. We are told not to lie, but never taught how not to lie, right? We are told we should care for others, but we are never taught how to stop being so darn selfish. Can you see that? Like, it's one thing to care for others, but the person who cares for others is the person who cares for others. Who you are inside leads to actions, right? We are told we should do or not do a great many things, but never taught how. But you cannot expect to suddenly have a transformed character because that simply isn't how human performance or personality even work. It's not instantaneous. The problem is the expectation of performance without adequate instruction or practice. No wonder so many of us have found that trying to live our faith can be so frustrating. As an example, you can sit around, you can sit around hoping to learn a foreign language. I don't know, like by osmosis, I guess. Maybe you could hold a, a Japanese textbook and be like, I think I'll get it eventually, right? Who in their right mind would do that? Nobody, right? Or you could open it up and get to work. You could start learning. You could hire a tutor. Whoa. You could be an apprentice. <laughs> you could sit in a room with a piano, likewise, and think, oh, you know what? If I sit here long enough, I bet you. That piano and I, we'll just connect and I'll figure it out. Nope. You've got to learn. You've got to put the work in. The same is true for anything that we want to perform. Any act outwardly that we want to come out of our being, we must prepare for. If we want our performance, in this case, spiritual formation, discipleship, the outward manifestation of our character, if we want that, if we want to be a particular sort and quality, then we must put in the time to practice, to learn how. This is just how to be a people, <laughs> right? And that how is, the, is by the transformation of our character by the intentional use of spiritual disciplines or practices in a devoted community under the guidance of the Holy Spirit. You will not obtain the character of Christ by osmosis. You must submit yourself to the work of the Spirit using these weapons of righteousness. Amen? Are we on the same page? The disciplines are simply activities That we utilize to indirectly prepare us for other activities. They are the practice. We do not practice piano to learn to practice well. We we practice piano to learn to perform piano. And even the performance is a form of practice for us, right? We learn how to do so we can do. Another example, I like to use this one all the time. Uh, Maybe you've wanted to lose weight at some point in your life. As much as you may desire this change in yourself, you cannot, no matter how hard you try, directly affect it. I mean, you could cut off your arm or something if you wanted to and you drop some pounds, but that's not what you're after. You cannot directly affect your weight. What you can do is limit your food intake What you can do is spend more time moving. Eat less, move more. Eating less, moving more are the disciplines that will in turn cause you to lose weight. Does that make sense? You're not directly affecting your weight. It's indirectly affecting your weight. Living my life as Jesus would if he were me is the weight loss. The performance, the spiritual disciplines are like eating less and moving more. Utilizing these practices will invariably lead to change in your character, which will in turn enable you to do. A quote from one of my favorites, Dallas Willard, he says, A discipline for the spiritual life is when the dust of history is blown away, nothing but an activity undertaken to bring us into more effective cooperation with Christ and His kingdom. When we understand that grace is gift, we then see that to grow in grace is to grow in what is given to us of God and by God. The disciplines are then, in the clearest sense, a means to that grace and also to those gifts. Spiritual disciplines, exercises unto godliness— our only activities undertaken to make us capable of receiving more of his life and power without harm to ourselves or others. If you were to receive more of his life and power without being prepared for it, you would destroy yourself and everyone around you. If you want more of his life and power in your life, you must be a vessel that is prepared to receive it. Last week, we spoke of the disciplines of abstinence and the disciplines of engagement, and we honed in on that self-denial, right? These first disciplines we're going to look at together today are two means of relinquishing our false self and discovering who we really are in Christ. We and our culture say we crave authenticity. something real. But the truth is, we don't know real. We wouldn't know real if it slapped us in the face. We don't even know our real selves yet. These two disciplines are perhaps chief among all the disciplines. And as the quote I read you earlier makes plain, this is not a new phenomenon. We crave stimulus. We are drowning in it. We overcommit, overwork, and over everything else. You ever wonder why? Why am I so busy? Why am I drowning in the very things I've put on my own self? Why do I keep adding more? What am I afraid of? What am I running from? It's like we're running through this dense fog, of the frantic pace and endless noise, and can't make sense of anything. We can't see clearly. There's so little visibility that we just jump at and cling to the first thing that looks kind of clear, right? This is what we look like all the time. anything that will make us feel secure to feel okay like there's normal because we're lost and we have no idea what we're doing blind limbless mice in a sensory deprivation tank we seek to fill the void of meaningless we experience by taking on more and more and more hoping maybe someday somehow We will finally find that elusive peace. Peace, joy, serenity, depth, composure, calm, steadiness. Those are what we crave to know and be deeply known. But we cannot do this by flooding our lives with more of the frantic pace and endless noise, with more of the fog. Worship team, would y'all make your way back up? Thank you. In our gospel reading this morning, we saw Jesus preaching, healing, meeting people's needs, casting out demons on two separate occasions, right? At the beginning of it, at the end of it. But right in the middle of those two scenes, Mark says this, in the morning while it was still very dark, he got up and went out to a deserted place and there he prayed. This sort of scene happens several times in the gospels we find jesus sometimes accompanied by his disciples frequently going to a deserted place to rest and pray in this place of solitude and silence this is where jesus is strengthened for the work that he was about just to show you what i mean Matthew 4, verses 1 and 2, Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. He fasted 40 days and 40 nights, and afterward he was famished. And that's when the temptation came, because that's where he was strong, right? Luke six twelve. now during those days he went out to the mountain to pray, and he spent the night in prayer to God. Matthew 14:13 Now when Jesus heard this he withdrew from there in a boat to a deserted place by himself but when the crowds heard it they followed him on foot to the towns Matthew 14:23 And after he had dismissed the crowds he went up by, up the mountain by himself to pray When evening came he was there alone Mark 6:31 He said to them Come away to a deserted place all by yourselves and rest for a while For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. Matthew 17, 1. Jesus took with him Peter and James and his brother John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. Matthew 26, 36 to 46. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane, and and he said to his disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. And as you know, that was the preparation for the final thing. Perhaps Luke 5.16 says it best. But Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. Hmm. People sometimes ask, if this is so important, why is it in the Bible? Why aren't these spiritual disciplines in the Bible? P Z. Well, they are. <laughs> You're not going to find a step-by-step manual for it because that's not what the Bible is. It's not basic instructions before leaving earth. It's a narrative that you are invited into. And if you will look, you will see people doing these things all over. It's dripping with the stuff, Jesus included. In our society, this sort of withdrawal is often viewed as weakness or failure. But for Jesus and his followers, the desert, that quiet place was a fortress, a place of power. It is time alone with God that gives us the energy and strength to genuinely engage. German pastor and theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer from the Confessing Church offered this pointed observation. He says this, we are so afraid of silence that we chase ourselves from one event to the next in order not to have to spend a moment alone with ourselves, in order not to have to look at ourselves in the mirror. That was during World War II when he was writing. Reflect on that fear as we enter this next time of worship today. Do you avoid... Being alone. Why? What troubles you? What do you find yourself doing when you are alone? Frequently when I am alone, it's, silence is hard for me, guys. Hard. I will put on my headphones and put on a podcast, something, right? It's hard. What do you find yourself doing? Why do you avoid it? Why do you avoid silence? Why do you avoid solitude? So, solitude and silence. I think one of these days we should just have a service where we come sit and be silent for like 30 minutes and then go home. I wonder what would happen. Matter of fact, there's a tradition that does that. The discipline of solitude is simply denying ourselves conscious interaction with other humans. It is to be alone and dwell on that experience. It's radical. It is perhaps the most effective of the disciplines in the formation of our spirits, which again, remember, is our heart, our will. In solitude, we learn just how much we depend on interaction with other people. We are afraid to be alone and so immerse ourselves in the frantic pace and endless noise. When we are not in a place of openness to God, solitude can literally kill us or at the very least, cause a significant loss of sanity. We were not made to be alone. We were made to be in community, we've talked about this. The discipline of solitude is temporary, always. But in the with God kind of life, the discipline of solitude, being alone with God, can become for us the primary place of our strength, like it was for Jesus. It is an act of surrender of ourselves and all that we believe about ourselves and each other. In the discipline of solitude, we get lost to be found. The discipline of solitude, however, is rarely practiced on its own. It's most often practiced with its close cousin, silence. I mean, who are you going to talk to, right? (laughs) Except God. Our friend Dallas Willard again says this, Silence and solitude go hand in hand, usually. Just as silence is vital to make solitude real, so is solitude needed to make the discipline of silence complete. Silence goes beyond solitude, and without it, solitude has little effect. Like, uh, Henry Nowen, likewise, Henry Nowen noted this. Silence is the way to make solitude a reality. The discipline of silence is both to be and be surrounded by quiet. to be quiet and to be around quiet. (laughs) Think about it. When was the last time you experienced true silence? I would wager that it is highly likely that most of you have never once in your life experienced true silence. Just about the only place you can find it these days are in these rooms uh, that like have all the sound dampening stuff. <laughs> Even alone in our homes, we are surrounded by the buzz and hum of electricity, of things whirring and moving, right? The ice maker <laughs> drops some ice, disturbs the silence. But silence must be found if we're ever to truly hear. And for the record, I'm not just talking about the kind of silence that you can find in those sound dampening rooms. That's where you can hear your own heartbeat, you know. I'm not talking just about that. But just getting away from the bustle, the noise, the distractions, getting away from the frantic pace and endless noise. How many times in your life have you said something and almost immediately thought to yourself, man, I really wish I hadn't said that. Maybe several times in the last week alone, right? Maybe it was mean. Maybe it was gossip. Maybe it was a bit of boasting. Whatever it was and whatever the reason, it came from your character, your automatic responses to the world around you. Something made you want to be mean. Something made you want to gossip. Something made you want to boast. And you responded right as your character dictated it is in silence however that we learn to stop speaking to bridle our tongues James had quite a bit to say about this in uh, in his book (laughs) when we become acquainted with having no words we learn to let go of having the last word and buddy we could use some of that in our culture right now right It is in silence that all of this negative habits of the tongue can be taken control of. And for those of you who desire to operate in the prophetic, and I do love those gifts in our body, but if you desire more in the prophetic, then the discipline of silence is an absolute necessity for you. It is in silence that you learn to say what needs to be said and not to say what is not. And can you imagine a better training ground toward better fruit for your prophetic ministry than that? Mmm. Learn to be quiet, to shut your mouth. My granddad used to always tell me when I was a kid, keep your eyes and ears open and your mouth shut. Now he had a different thing in mind, right? Be aware of what's going on around you and be ready to fight all the time because there's threats everywhere Yeah, sure that's not what we're talking about though the disciplines of solitude and silence when practiced together have a way of stripping us completely bare like, like nothing else can what am I when I am doing nothing and nothing is happening around me Who are we when the productivity and recognition cannot be had? In this space, we can learn better listening skills, including being more attentive to the words of Jesus. We can be released of the incessant need to be stimulated. We can learn to let go of the endless void of comparing ourselves to other people. We can obtain freedom from the negative habits of speech, like gossip, deception, the need to express our own opinions, whether out loud or with our thumbs. Importantly, we can begin to grasp a greater sense of self-awareness, which as we've said many times, is fundamental for spiritual and emotional maturity. In this still and quiet space, we learn just how much we depend on human connection, and it teaches us genuine appreciation for the gift that is the other person, our neighbor. In silence and solitude, it's just me and God, and I'm terrified. Not me and God in my phone, not me and God in a podcast, not me and God in a TV show, right? Whatever other thing I can divert my attention to. I'm terrified because even though I know God is with me, I feel alone. I'm discovering that just me and God feels a lot like, well, just me ouch, right? My inner life is too loud to hear him, and so I must get away, I must get silent, and I must learn to quiet myself in that space. So let's put this into practice and change that about ourselves. Let's get lost so that we can be found. To begin putting this practice uh, into practice, begin by taking advantage of the small, miniature solitudes and silences that you have throughout the day that you would have otherwise filled with something else in the morning before everyone else wakes up. Well, I'm not the first one awake. Well, change that the commute to work or after you've dropped off the kids, driving in your car is one of the greatest and easiest places to begin practicing the disciplines of solitude and silence. That time that you would have flipped on the radio or put on a podcast or whatever it might be, don't and just be silent and drive. The first several minutes at the office before you are bombarded with problems to solve. Before you open up your computer or check your phone or or whatever, utilize that space, five minutes, just be silent, nothing, sit there, close your eyes, stare at a wall, just be silent. Anytime you're walking alone to the mailbox, whatever, right? You can even practice solitude and silence in the bustle of Walmart while you're shopping. or any other time that you would have instead again just flipped on some distraction, some information download, podcast, TV show, whatever it is that you turn to to fill that void. A monk named Thomas Merton said this many years ago, it is in deep solitude that I find the gentleness with which I can truly love my brothers. The more solitary I am, the more affection I have for them solitude and silence teach me to love my brothers for what they are not for what they say you will probably find this discipline or these two disciplines rather uncomfortable at first (laughs) that's to be expected You'll probably find your mind wandering to everything else except the presence of God. Suddenly, vacuuming the living room sounds great, right? Oh, did I, did I get those dishes done? The things that will come to your mind in this space, it's crazy. Things that you would otherwise always avoid and not think about. If you need to, take a notepad with you and just write those things down to get it out so you can read reorient your attention. Keep at it, keep practicing. As with any form of training, the benefits of the training are in the fruit, not necessarily in the practice and training itself, right? We practice piano to play well. Keep this kind of thought that The training isn't the point, right? Keep that in mind as you venture into these disciplines. There's a learning curve to them. But start with these small practices and see if you don't begin to grow in compassion towards other people. See if you don't begin to notice some of the other spiritual fruit I've mentioned in your life. Remember, to learn to surrender all. We have to start by surrendering a little. Start there. You can grow the practice from these small things. And when you're ready, I've got plenty of resources to help you take it further to the next level, whatever you want to think about it like. But if you find these disciplines helpful, beneficial in your spiritual life, just ask. I would be glad to show you. That's all I've got for today. Solitude, silence, benefits, how to get started. I hope it was good. I hope that you will put these things into practice in some small way, at least in your life this week.